1: Welcome to the Talking Biotech podcast, it's a weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology, and the good things we can do for people and the planet. I'm Kevin Falta, I'm a professor at the University of Florida and today we're going to talk to another professor at the University of Florida, Dr. Jude Grosser and Professor Grosser's been on with us before, probably episode 26 or something, four years ago, you know. But um, welcome back. We're in um, the American Society of Horticultural Sciences meeting in Las Vegas. <laughs> I forgot where we
2: are. <laughs> yeah, you walk outside and you'll see the gambling machine. That'll remind you. Yeah, it always reminds you.
1: But um, so I get a lot of questions about what is the current state of citrus greening disease? And what are, is the current state of the remedies that have been proposed? Because we talked about them years ago. So tell me, um, start out with where is the disease how much is being lost and how is it affecting the industry?
2: Okay, so uh, our our production in Florida and uh, in our industry, keep in mind, is 88% sweet oranges for processing. And so uh, the juice business is, is the driver of the industry. So uh, we had a record low uh, production last year that went down to just 42 uh, million boxes of, of fruit. And a lot of that was also driven by Hurricane Irma. That, Covered the entire state of Florida and and wreaked havoc on the trees all the way across the state. So this year there was a rebound back up to uh, I think somewhere in the upper seven seventies million boxes. Uh, but what was interesting about that is that, that even though that's less than half of our normal production, uh, some of the growers at the end of the season actually had trouble selling their fruit. So. Um, a big problem in our industry is the, the demand for orange juice is declining, and so because of the problems with the disease, there's there's been a big drop off on um, advertising and clever advertising, and so all that's being revisited now to try to swing swing that back the other way to increase the demand for the oranges. So the, the status of the of the disease in the state is that um, all the all the trees that are in production are basically infected, and so growers are the ones that are staying in business are learning how to live with the disease. And so there's been uh, a lot of advances. Um, Initially the main effort was controlling the psyllid and that required a rotation of chemical sprays and a a minimum of about 12 sprays per year which is uh, far different from what growers have ever done. Uh, Typically before greening the growers would have one oil spray in the summer. Uh, maybe two if they had a problem with some other disease. Um, so to go to 12 and rotating the chemicals and that added a huge expense and that, that expense added 800 to $1,000, $1,200 uh, cost per acre per year. Uh, but it turns out that even with all these sprays uh, to control the vector, which is the psyllid, it's kind of like the mosquito and transmitting malaria. Um, we weren't able to slow down the infection rate at all uh, and so even well, for example, we planted 70 acres of trees in, in at our center in Lake Alford and it was under the standard psyllid control and after one year, uh, two-thirds of the trees weren't affected. In the meantime, a lot of progress has been made with nutrition, so uh, we discovered that uh, the disease causes severe secondary and micronutrient deficiencies and they're twice as great in the roots as they are in the leaves and so to get the tree back online once it's sick, you have to correct these deficiencies in the entire tree, especially in the roots. And if you do that, you can get the vascular system back online, and then the tree starts recovering, and you can start regaining yields and and also fruit quality. And then we've also discovered that at overdosing some of the micronutrients, especially manganese, um, looks like it's having a therapeutic effect and is actually reducing the titers of the bacteria, in some cases eliminating the bacteria. Um, getting it to a non-active infection state. So it's not curing the trees but it's what I call putting them into remission. You'll see now, you, you can be driving down a road and you'll see a grove that looks like a graveyard and then the next grove along the, the same road will, will look like a beautiful grove that looked the same way it would have before HLB even came to Florida and, and a lot of the growers have gotten production back up to 400 and some of them are even hitting 600 boxes to the acre which is uh, more than enough to make a, a good profit. Well, so. let, me, let me jump in
1: real quick, and because and, we touched on a couple of things that I realized I should have covered from the beginning. Uh, you talk about a psyllid, you talk about bacteria. You know, what is this disease and how is it transmitted?
2: So, it's a, a phloem limited bacterial disease. So, it, it's only in the phloem, and the phloem is the part of the, the tree's vascular system that delivers the photosynthate. That feeds all the cells of the entire tree, and so uh, one of the things that happens is this fl- the bacteria causes the phloem to become clogged, and the photosynthate cannot get to the other parts of the tree, and it kind of starves the rest of the tree, and you get a massive feeder root uh, die-off in most uh, trees under a severe infection. So, but when you get when you get a rebalancing of these uh, nutrients, uh, especially with the with the root systems. The trees are showing uh, the ability to, to, to recover. The rootstock um, has a big impact on this and we're finding that all rootstocks have some ability to respond to um, improved nutrition, but some do it more quickly and some do it more robustly and some maybe both of those things, which is what we're after as geneticists. Yeah, to, to you a, mentioned a, the psyllid thing. Though, the psyllid is the small tiny insect that transmits the disease. It's a, a, a sap feeding insect and uh, in order to control the disease you, you have to get it down to like uh, I mean you have to kill 99.9% of, of the psyllid population and it's it, it's been impossible to do that with, yeah. with biocontrol or with any chemical program. Well, here's another good
1: question though and I, I always get asked this one I never know the answer. When did the disease first come to Florida and because it takes three things right it takes citrus trees And it takes um, a bacterium and it takes a psyllid. And so when did each get here? We know citrus trees were here, but when when did the bacterium get here and when did the psyllid get
2: here? Well, my guess is that the bacteria has probably been here for a long time, but maybe in isolated dooryard trees. And so uh, somebody coming from China wanted to have the same pumelo they had in their yard where they grew up. And so they smuggled budwood in and brought it through the airport, and then when they got got here, they grafted it to a, a rootstock and grew the tree in their yard. And it might have been harboring the bacteria that, that may have been here for decades, for for all we know. But then the psyllid probably came in them the same way. Probably there were eggs or larvae on some smuggled-in budwood, uh, and they you know they hatched and flew away and started a population. And it, gradually, when those two hit each other out in the field, then. The, the, the psyllid could pick up the bacteria from the infected dory artery and start moving it around. And that, that process, I think, was probably the, the psyllid starting to pick it up and move. It's probably been going on for about the last 15 years almost. Yeah, yeah it was like 2003 that this really took off, yeah, so
1: right? And and so that, that always was a – people ask all the time, how did this happen? And, um, and the smuggled-in trees, you know, I guess the take-home messages
2: don't smuggle in stuff. Oh, but, that's absolutely – how we get almost all of our problems. Yeah. Well, moving <laughs> around insects and, and bacteria and
1: vectors, right? Man,
2: man it's the worst vector. Yeah. Well, going back to, um, you
1: mentioned the nutrition and the other ways in which these have been solved. I know that your program has looked at a couple of different ways to do this, whether it was creating um, uh, polyploids or uh, putting multiple or somatic hybrids, a lot of different tricks that were not using formal genetic engineering, but we're certainly engineering genetics. And What were some of
2: the things that your laboratory is focused on? Okay. So, for rootstock improvement, trying to to find a rootstock can can actually transmit some kind of tolerance or resistance into a a more susceptible scion and most most of the commercial scions, particularly oranges and grapefruits, are highly susceptible to the disease. if you're working at a tetraploid level, you you have uh, opportunity to uh, greatly increase your genetic diversity in, in uh, breeding populations and progeny that you, you create because you're you can actually mix the genes from four different diploid genomes together at once rather than two when you're when you're crossing a, a diploid. And so there, there's we're doing the rootstock breeding both at the diploid and the tetraploid level. and the tetraploid level. All of our initial breeding parents came from the somatic hybridization or pro, you know, that were created by protoplast fusion. But now we're still using those as parents, but we're also using product hybrids of those that we've made from sexual crosses also. So, so in the rootstock uh, screening, we developed a high throughput screening method where uh, we create, every year we create a couple thousand hybrids, and we put them through a preliminary uh, soil phytophthora screen to get down to manageable numbers. So that weeds out things that are not adapted to Florida soils and can't handle the, the typical uh, pathogens that exist in the soil. And, and they also have to be able to um, mine the soil for the nutrients and transport them up to the top of the tree efficiently. And so you start out with several thousand um, seeds that you plant and the seedlings come up and then you only select the ones that can really handle all that. And so you, you get down to a manageable number. And then we're doing this, this grafting technique where we take our whole entire bud stick of uh, sweet orange from a, a Valencia tree that's in the field that's that's got a high titer of the bacteria showing strong symptoms. And then we grow the top of the tree out from that infected stick and that allows us to see whether the rootstock can have any impact on, on the manifestation of disease growing out from that infected stick. And so, we've, we've screened, you know, we've gone through 12,000 seedlings in the, in the past six or seven years. And there's patterns starting to show up in which ones are, are working. So for example, in the, in the tetraploid germplasm, um, it's really interesting. One of the, one of the patterns that's my, one of my favorite ones that's really working well is we have, um, we have a tet, what we call a tetrazyg that's a cross of two somatic hybrids. And one of these is called UFR4 was released as a commercial rootstock and it's gaining some traction as a commercial rootstock. But it shows that uh, during an infection with with greening disease that it has a a higher ability to preserve its feeder roots than all the other rootstocks that it's been compared with. And uh, Evan Johnson and Jim Graham's work has shown that. So we also know that within the lemon group, uh, there's an ability to have rapid phloem regeneration. So if you get phloem that's compromised by an infection, the lemon group seems to be able to really quickly grow phloem that bypasses the clogged phloem and gets the tree's vascular system back online. And so we, we wanted to combine those two things. Um, so we were crossing uh, a tetraploid of, of Volcomer lemon uh, with this UFR4 to try to combine both of those characteristics together. But it, there was another factor that we, we got lucky on, on us, but it was serendipity. It turns out that we had Volk uh, tetraploids that have their cybrids. So they have uh, cytoplasm from amylocarpa that, that was a total accident. We were, trying to, we were trying to make a somatic hybrid of amylocarpa and Volk and, and we ended up with an autotetraploid of Volk that had cytoplasm from amylocarpa. But it turns out when you swap the, the cytoplasm out. It fixes one of the problems with the lemon group as a rootstock. Uh, there's, there's a couple of, of, of selections from the lemon group that are commercial rootstocks. One is rough lemon. One is bold. Uh, there are a few others. Uh, but they generally are, are very productive trees, but the fruit quality is generally inferior because it has lower soluble solids. So we found that when we swap the cytoplasm out with this Lacarpa cytoplasm, it fixes that problem and you get elevated. Oh, nice. Soluble solids, and it looks like so. It looks like we have hybrid rootstocks now that all three of these things are working. We're getting the feeder root preservation. We're getting the throne regeneration. And we're getting uh, good fruit quality. And one one of these uh, hybrids that's in our, our what I call the gauntlet uh, rootstock screening, the high throughput screening that I mentioned, has turned out to be extremely um, productive for for seed, and that's how we propagate the rootstock. So. For me, it's pretty exciting. That's
1: cool. If you want yeah. to test some up by, oh, by me, I can put some in.
2: Um, yeah. I actually put a, one of our new oranges on uh, no, the hybrid number eight out of this cross. And, and a large number of hybrids from this cross are doing really well on our screen. But the, the number eight is actually the best one. and I've got a, I've got a one-year-old tree that's already up five foot tall and has no, no symptoms of greening. That's never had the vector silver control at all. Uh, so uh, it's, it's very uh, very promising. I should jump in on this idea
1: of somatic hybrids because this isn't something that most people understand, especially people who come from the animal world. Um, this is actually a process where you're taking two nuclei from different um, genotypes or different genetic backgrounds and fusing them together. So Not just crossing to get you know the genetic mixture that we normally get. You get a genetic mixture by doubling the chromosomes by shoving them in the one cell or in the one nucleus and then having that nucleus reside inside some cell. So when you're talking about cybrids, you're talking about that weirdo nucleus being inside a cytoplasm that's different too. So it's not just a question of the um, two genomes having to figure out how to get along. They have to now be able to interact with the cellular machinery around them, right? So it's complicated stuff.
2: So like you, the UFR4, uh, the parent of the rootstocks that I've been talking about, is a cross of two somatic hybrids. So one of them is a, is a cross of Nova, uh, man, which is a tolerant Mandarin hybrid with um, Pomelo, and the other parent is a, is a somatic hybrid of Clio, and, uh, which is a good rootstock in trifoliate orange, which is a very good source of disease resistance genes. So you've got four things contributing there, and then you've got the bulk, and then you've got the Amlicarpus. So there's six different things you know, <laughs> contributing to, this, to these rootstocks that look so uh, promising. And and to further elaborate on the cybrid uh, situation, that's an area where we're breaking new ground biologically because uh, the cytoplasm has chloroplasts and it has mitochondria. And there's a a scientist that that passed away in the past few years named Lynn Margulis who who developed the endosymbiont theory. Um, And and I, I always like to throw this. Argument out to people that don't believe in evolution because this goes way back to the beginning of eukaryotic organisms. And that to develop a multicelled organism, you needed such a, a lot of energy to, to do the functions of a multicelled organism that there was, there was a symbiosis that was created. And, and bacteria actually combined with the, the growing eukaryotic organisms as they became more complex. And so, we ended up with mitochondria, which all have a small genome that looks very similar to a bacterial genome in the wild. So, this, this woman, Lynn Margulis, hypothesized that um, way back at the, at the beginning of evolution, that there was a symbiotic relationship between bacteria and these, these developing eukaryotic cells. And if that was true, that you should be able to find a bacteria in the wild that has almost the same uh, DNA sequences as our mitochondria, and so she searched the, the, the bacterial world and found. Just that a bacteria that has almost the same identical DNA sequences as our uh, mitochondria. So, uh, and then there's the chloroplast, and she did the same thing and found the cyanobacteria uh, that has the same deal going there, similar um, to what's the genome found in the chloroplast. So, but these genomes interact with the nuclear uh, genome that they're combined with. And there's, there's crosstalk, and so when you change the cytoplasm, you actually get some minor changes that can, can be useful. And a good example of that is um, we're, we're working with grapefruit, which is highly susceptible to citrus canker. It's the next biggest problem to citrus greening for, for the grapefruit industry in Florida. It's a big, very big problem. And we found that we've made cybrids with kumquat, and it turns out that when we made these cybrids, we thought that the mitochondria from the kumquat was going to help make the grapefruit uh, cybrids more tolerant of canker. Uh, so we made these plants and started testing them and it turns out some of them were more tolerant of canker and some of them were not. So when we, when we did the molecular marker assay, it turns out that the ones that had chloroplasts from the kumquat uh, were the ones that were more tolerant of the canker. So the canker tolerance is coming by swapping the chloroplast genome out. Even though they all had the mitochondrial genome from from the cumquats, uh, so they're all they're all going to produce fruit that looks just like a grapefruit. But now we have some that have, are going to have enhanced caker tolerance because of the cyberization biotechnology that was was performed. And is that because the
1: the chloroplast or the mitochondria maybe they don't shake hands with the nucleus exactly, and so they're always in kind of a funny state of stress, trying to figure out you know how to communicate within the cell. And I mean, there's got to be some reason why this works. So I don't think it's just citrus. I think there's other examples yeah. where uh, nuclei and um, cytoplasms don't match, and you see benefits. Yeah. Is it something like that? Is there a hypothesis for why that works?
2: Yeah. That, I, I think this the, the, there's some regulatory mechanisms that are affected by the crosstalk between the organelles. So you get, you get a lot of genes, nuclear genes, that are upregulated and downregulated based on what the cytoplasm is. So, so back, back to the somatic hybridization, it's also contributing to um, new varieties. Uh, and we've ha- we have a diploid uh, variety called Sugarbell that our, that our program released, uh, Fred Gemitter, my colleague, released. It turns out it's the most uh, greening tolerant cyan variety in, in, that we know of. And it's also a, a, a very delicious and beautiful piece of fruit. And we're learning that this uh, all, this selection also transmits greening tolerance at a very high level, and so we've used it in, in our uh, breeding program. And one of our goals is to make seedless selections because for the fresh market, if a uh, new variety isn't seedless, it's not going to compete nationally or internationally. And so you know, the cuties and the halos have dominated the store in the, in the tangerine market. So if you don't if you don't have seedlessness, uh, you might as well forget uh, moving a new variety at, at a high level. So uh, we're making triploids, and to, to do that, the, the easiest way for us to do that is to cross a tetraploid produced by somatic hybridization and cross that back with a diploid, and so the sugar bell is a monoembryonic selection, which means that all of the seeds that it produces are zygotic. So we can use it as a female, and so if we have good tetraploids that are uh, produced from complementary parents and made into tetraploids by protoplast fusion, and we, we get pollen from those, and we can cross it back onto females like the sugar bell and then we generate triploids and the triploids are always either seed, seedless or nearly seedless because the uh, the three sets of chromosomes interferes with normal meiosis and so you don't get normal seed development. So this is why bananas are seedless and the, the natural Persian lime is, is always seedless and the new watermelons on the market are are also, the seedless ones are also triploids. So, we're, we're exploiting this and, and we're moving the, the tolerance to, to these new scions and we've got uh, a lot of new ones in the field. We've already made one commercially available that's a, a triploid that was Sugar Bell was the mother and it's got an absolutely fantastic flavor and there's a, there's a whole lot of new ones in the pipeline are coming that are showing exceptional HLB tolerance. So Some of these have orange-like fruit too that can be used maybe as a standalone, uh, something similar to an orange or for our blending. You're allowed to blend 10 percent uh, mandarin juice in, in, in with orange juice which you can use to improve the flavor and, and the color so there's a lot there's a lot of opportunities from uh, more tolerant um, scions that are that are coming along and it's very exciting and and the fact that the things that we've learned about nutrition have kind of revolutionized the breeding program because five or six years ago before we, we knew what to do with the nutrition we were only getting maybe 35-40% of our hybrids to, to grow up and, and flower and fruit because the disease was taking them out. But but now that we're applying you know, what we've learned about the nutrition, now we're, we're back to getting 85-90% of, of the trees are healthy and producing, you are getting the flowering and the fruiting, so it's very exciting. You know, and, and our breeding blocks look nothing like they did five years ago. It's been a, a real metamorphosis back to real green. Yeah, well, <laughs> green I mean, instead of yellow. Yeah.
1: But that's nice because it's uh, the benefit of the... Of the, of the Disaster, I guess. But we're talking to Dr. Jude Grosser about citrus breeding or HLB. Um, really how what it is, how it's spread, and what are some of the future well, solutions, the current solutions that are being implemented. And this is the Talking Biotech podcast. We'll be back in just a minute. Saturday. Tune into the podcast on Saturday, August 17, 2019. It's the 200th episode of the Talking Biotech Podcast! Science! One day after Elvis' death day, more guests sharing their solutions for people and the planet. Gene editing to cure animal disease. Therapies for cancer and viral disorders. Next generation crop technologies for sustainable farming.
2: This world.
1: Screening out of the gate with new technologies in the race to feed 10 billion people! Hydrogen crops, less resource dependence, fewer pesticides, and more sustainability! Biotechnology! Covering disinformation that generates fear, uncertainty, and doubt that is impending technology from reaching the industrialized world farmer and the food insecure! Saturday Saturday Saturday, 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 August 17, 2019, the 200th episode of the Talking Biotech Podcast. TalkingBiotechPodcast.com.
0: TalkingBiotechPodcast.com. Talking <laughs>
1: We're speaking with Dr. Jude Grosser from the University of Florida, Citrus Research and Education Center in Lake Alfred, Florida. Uh, he's a colleague of mine and uh, uh, kind of the, the wizard of uh, citrus biology. And you know, one other question before we get into kind of the genetic engineering side is, is there a natural source of resistance that breeders have tried to capture?
2: So what, what we started doing when, you know, we, we, we have these genetic engineering capabilities. So we, we can move single genes in, into most of our varieties. So we started screening g- genes that had already shown to work against other gram-negative bacterial diseases and we made a collection of those. Ones that have already had a history of working in, a, in other crops. And we started out with antimicrobial peptides and you've probably already heard about spinach defense in genes. That, are being worked with the collaboration between Texas A&M and Southern Gardens. And what we found was that the the antimicrobial peptide genes, and we screened um, 10 different ones, they, they look like they worked for, for a while, actually for a few years, and then in our hands at least, almost all the ones that we've tested have started fading after that. And the Southern Gardens uh, program has screened a whole bunch more than we have, and I think they've found some that are a little bit more robust. That, that they're moving forward with. Uh, but, but in our hands, we also were screening genes that are involved in the plant's own immune system, which is called systemic acquired resistance. And there are, there are regulatory genes that have been isolated from other crops that, w- that have worked. And when you, although citrus has homologs to these genes, when you swap them out and get one that wasn't co evolved with the pathogen of that particular variety, they seem, they seem to work better. So, we have uh, the NPR1 from Arabidopsis and SABP2 from tobacco and we have some, some other genes involved in, in these pathways now that, that we're looking at that the tolerance in our transgenic trees has held up now for about 10 years in the field. Really? I mean that long? We have, we have trees in the field for 10 years. The problem is they were, they were made with juvenile explants, so they've had a, a longer, actually the transgenic process seems to have made the juvenility longer than what we normally get. Yeah. So they're they're nine, ten years old now and they're just breaking juvenility. They should have done that two or, at least two or three years ago, but they didn't. But, but I think there's
1: precedent bad. of that with the arabidopsis NPR one that uh, folks have seen effects on yield and in, in, in other systems. I know we did in strawberry. And but but that the NPR one is um, is a gene that is involved in uh, in Kind of igniting the defense response. So when you overexpress this gene, there's probably more of the protein around in the, in the cytosol, it's out there in the cell. And when the signal comes for a uh, need for defensive action, it moves to the nucleus and you see uh, activation of defense genes. So this kind of just primes it. The other one is uh, solicid, you said SABP, so Solicid Salicylic Acid Binding, binding Protein. protein. And, and so that one, how's that one
2: doing? same it's
1: working beautifully really working beautifully so yeah. is there any uh, intent to deregulate these or any kind of idea that this may be well um,
2: yeah that that's on the on the radar but um, our philosophy is with transgenic citrus is that if you're going to ask a grower to pay more for a transgenic tree and you're, you're trying to solve HLB you're going to want the tree to to survive and be productive for for at least 20 or 30 years yeah so if you only have one transgene and there's a possibility that the pathogen could have a mutation and overcome that gene, then you'd be back in square one. So the idea is we wanted to, we want to find at least two transgenes that back each other up. And so if there's a mutation in one and the pathogen overcomes it, then the other one will take out that, that mutant so that there's not a new race of the pathogen that's created that can, can wipe out your transgenic resistance. So we're in the process right now of building plants to stack the genes. And then, my, my colleague, Manjul Duck, who you, you know very well, uh, and also at the USDA, a um, program led by Ed Stover, they're also putting these sorts of genes and stacking them um, into rootstocks, hoping that the effect uh, of the gene in the rootstock is transmitted through the graft union and up, and up to the sign. And trees are being created. Uh, right now, we have a greenhouse full of them and I know the USDA does as well that are getting ready to go. I think we're planting some in, in the next few weeks, actually, uh, that are among these, these type of plants. So, um, we don't, at the University of Florida, I, I, we don't have the, the massive amount of money that it would take to deregulate anything. But if we get the, we get the package that works, then we'll be looking for a commercial partner to, to make that happen. It's, and Southern Gardens is the obvious partner because they already know how to deal with with all of these things, and it makes sense to actually take their best spinach defense gene and partner partner that with the best uh, SAR regulatory gene that, that are working, and to have a really strong transgenic package. And they may be doing that on, on their own because some of these genes are not uh, proprietary, and we've published published on it. I, I don't really know because they don't they don't tell us. You know, yeah, they, they play what their cards. Doing. But another applies. exciting thing is that the transgenic technology is very important for the, the, the CRISPR technology. In, in citrus, um, the, the idea of using CRISPR to, to battle these diseases is, is getting a lot of attention and a lot of funding. But the idea is, if you're going to do it, um, you need to end up with a, a, a plant that doesn't have a GMO's signature if you want to have the easiest path to commercialization. Otherwise you got to go through all the, the same costs and, and deregulation that you're facing with with transgenic plants. And so, we have, we have several systems that we're working on and the protoplast system looks, looks very promising uh, to, to get plants that will not have a, a GMO signature that are, that, that are CRISPR knocking out whatever gene you want to knock out that will make the, the plants resistant to the, to the greening disease. But one of the exciting things that's happened with that is, and I think it's also a way to make uh, GMO plants uh, more exciting for the public, is that traditionally we've used GFP as uh, our marker a selectable marker and that's the green fluorescent protein gene and I'm sure you've talked about it on your program before um, that comes from the jellyfish and and though people eat jellyfish, that gene has not been deregulated. And so um, we have a lot of very good transgenic, the ones we have in the the field for 10 years have this gene in in them too that we used for, for the selection process. So we were looking for a replacement and we decided that anthocyanin, which is an antioxidant that helps prevent cancer and makes things purple. It makes grapes purple and blueberries. And you know, it's, it's a very uh, positive gene. And so we, we've used that to replace the GFP. And the first thing we had to do is express it in, the, in citrus plants. So we got the, uh, a clone of the gene from grape and we put it in and we made purple limes. And uh, all different colors of purple, fuchsia, dark purple, blah, blah, blah. And uh, everybody's getting excited about the possibility of having purple margaritas that, uh, that actually can help maybe prevent cancer. So, <laughs> yeah,
1: well, but that's, I think that that's what's going to sell it. And years ago, yeah. I wanted to make the GM orange where you stuck in a resistance cassette, but also tons of genes that would ignite um, uh Higher vitamin C, higher vitamin A, uh, you know, beta carotene, and then the anthocyanin. Because and and, and lean into it rather than go running away from it, saying we created a, a product that's better for farmers, better for you, and you can tell the you can tell because it's the world's first purple orange juice. And I think there's a I think there's something there, and I, I would love to see that commercialized.
2: So so anyway, for the the it's really paid off because with the CRISPR technology, I think it could be really helpful because. Again, this is Manjul's work, but he started out with a grape gene, but now he's using uh, citrus anthocyanin genes because they, they, they exist in blood oranges mm-hmm. and they also exist in, um, in the finger limes uh, and microcitrus, And so, he's got, he's got citrus clones. And the way he makes it work as a marker for trans- transformation is using the somatic embryogenesis regeneration system. And so, he has embryo-specific promoters, which are the switches that turn genes on and he has isolated us, well he started with a carrot embryo-specific promoter, but then he used that to fish a homolog out of the citrus genome and now he has citrus embryo-specific promoter. So we have a whole citrus selection system because he's hooked uh, the embryo-specific promoter from citrus to the citrus anthocyanin gene and when we make, when we put that in the protoplast or in the embryogenic callus uh, from suspensions to transform them, the cells, uh, when, when they're transformed and they form somatic embryos. The embryos are purple because the switch turns that gene on. And then as soon as you regenerate the plant, that that switch only works in the embryo, so it turns back, and the and the and the plant returns to the normal green color. And you've got you've got your transgenic plants. So, so really clever selection scheme. Yeah, it's really neat. I, I like seeing it in culture. It's like you see
1: these clumps of tissue with these purple dots, and it's it's really nice. <laughs> it's it's really innovative.
2: Yeah. It's, it's really gorgeous. So so we've gone back and made the, a lot of these. Um, Limes now, and we're and we have uh, some oranges that have the anthocyanin gene, and uh, we're we're putting it in in some pink grapefruit, and so there's a lot of things coming along that, not using not using that switch just to make purple fruits that have high levels of anthocyanin, and just uh, and you know what's interesting is when we show pictures of the purple limes, even organic people want them, oh yeah, and they say. Well, it's, it's a it's a GMO and they go, I don't care, we want them anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well,
1: it, but, you know, a lot of those folks do have, you know, the organic producers get excited about genetic engineering because they realize how it can help their bottom line either from cool products or from fewer inputs and it's really only some of the diehards in the national organizations that tend to push back a little bit but, you know, I think the people who see the writing on the wall that science is good science is good science. and if you want to produce with fewer inputs, you're going to need some help, and and these are good solutions. What about other things that are on the horizon? I mean, I think about um, other genes. There's been so much talk over the years, but what what's going on, and what are the are the best but what are the best bets, and what are the innovative things that you've seen coming to solve the problem?
2: So uh, I, I think it's going to be in the in the midterm for for the greening problem. It's going to be a combination of genetics and, and nutrition. Uh, but once we, we get through this bottleneck um, and, and there's so much other peripheral work going on that, that uh, I, th- I think the, the speed of progress is going to accelerate a, a, an order of magnitude. Because uh, we're working closely with our, our new uh, food biochemist Yu Wang. And she's helping us uh, identify um, genes. And, and well, we just heard a, a, a very nice lecture from Harry Klee, who talked all about the volatiles that make tomatoes taste better. Well, the similar kind of work is going on uh, in, uh, in citrus. And, and so you're identifying the volatiles that, that really make the citrus taste good, and then you're finding the alleles that, that produce those volatiles, and we'll, we'll be able to. Uh, not only use the, those markers to select new hybrids that, ha- that have those, uh, that will produce those volatiles and make the fruit taste better, uh, but we'll also be able to do the genetic engineering and, and make existing cultivars uh, taste better. So that, to me, that's huge and, 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 you know, if you're trying to get kids to have a, a more nutritious diet, if, if if the healthy food tastes better, they're going to eat more of it. And they're, like, like Harry Cleese said today, you'd rather have your kids, Eating fruits and vegetables and Twinkies, and if the fruits and vegetables taste better, they'll grab that instead of the Twinkie. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah, no. I have a friend who's a strawberry breeder who said, I've spent the last 15 years increasing the anthocyanin compounds 25%, and he's calling this a major success, and it is. And I said, Yeah, but what if you could just get someone to eat two strawberries rather than one? Then you've increased the bioavailable anthocyanin twofold. And he kind of looked real disappointed. <laughs> You're right. You know, you get people to eat more of it. So if we had any concluding thoughts on this, do you want to get out your crystal ball or any ideas about the future of the disease? Or, you know, what are your impressions on the whole problem
2: and going forward? It, it, to me, it's it, it's that we have to, to remember how nature's always dealt with catastrophic diseases. And that would be you have... Uh, a population in the wild that's genetically diverse, there's tremendous genetic diversity and a new pathogen might come into an area and it might wipe out 90, 95 percent, even 99 percent of the population but there always were some individual genotypes that were either tolerant or resistant and then they intermated and the species was able to go through a bottleneck and recover and get back to, it, to its original status. But we've kind of eliminated that in the wild because we've destroyed so much of our genetic diversity and it's still disappearing at a, at a rapid rate now. And many things are, are being destroyed by human advancement and also by extinction. And so with the breeding programs and, and I think biotechnology has a key role in, in manifesting the recreation of, of a lot of genetic diversity and rebuilding it. Uh, but you can do it faster and more robustly if you employ the tools of biotechnology that, that we have. And I think that's that's what's really helping us solve uh, the greening problem because like, I think we've been more quickly able to, to create a lot of genetic diversity in the rootstock breeding uh, germplasm using somatic hybridization and being able to cross at the tetraploid level and, and even selecting, you know, just selecting large populations for abiotic stress, it's turning out to be good for a biotic stress problem. So there's a lot of uh, overlap of things that we didn't expect and it's, it's really fascinating and exciting. when when you get involved in it.
1: No, it sounds really great. I, I, I remain optimistic. Uh, when people ask me about the future of citrus screening and the future of the citrus industry, I always say that you know I, I'm optimistic because the industry has always been strong and has bounced back from disaster before. But we have so many good scientists using so many different ways to solve this problem that I'm a little bit optimistic. And they're all working together. And they are working yeah. together. And 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 and, uh, and I so I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that the future of Florida citrus might look very different but I think it'll be there so and you're one of the people helping that happen so thank you very much. You're welcome.
2: Citrus isn't going away and it, it, you'll be enjoying it for hopefully lifetimes to come. <laughs>
1: very good. Well thank you very much Dr. Grosser and thank you listeners for listening again to another issue of Talking Biotech Podcast. If you don't mind writing a review I'd really appreciate it. There's a lot of them now and they're really strong and I think it's tells people that it's a worthwhile um, series to investigate and as we enter into 200 episodes and five years of programming um, it's been um, your reviews really do matter thank you very much for listening and we'll talk to you again next week
0: thank you for listening to the talking biotech podcast send your suggestions for guests comments or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time Sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.